and you guys can have a seat. I just want to say, if this is your first time with us today, we are so glad you're, you're here. Uh, we hope this will be a place of rest and restoration for all who come in. I mean, we've been walking through the book of John. Uh, we've been praying for that people would believe in Jesus and also find true life in Jesus. And last week, as we were kind of walking, beginning our, our, our journey in John 1, uh, we, we saw that God does extraordinary works through very ordinary people and very ordinary means and methods. Um, and, you know, and then Jesus kind of brings in the extra. And this week we have another ordinary thing, a wedding. <laughs> uh, but we all know weddings aren't ordinary. Uh, to the people getting married... Um, it is a big day for the bride and groom. Me and my wife, we love weddings. Um, it, it kind of reminds us of, a, you know, of why we got married, kind of the purpose of marriage. You, you see the vows. Uh, you get free dinner uh, and dancing. It's kind of a free date. It's a lot of fun. And after college, we had a ton of weddings. We had about 30 weddings in three years, all types of different weddings, uh, fancy weddings, low-key weddings, big weddings, small weddings. And something was almost always true of these weddings. Someone was guaranteed to be stressed. <laughs> like it was either the bride or the groom, uh, maybe the parents of the bride or groom, maybe the photographer, the wedding planner, or, or maybe just like the parents of the ring bearer. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I guarantee it. Like you'll very likely find someone who is on edge at some point at a wedding. Why? Because it is a big day. And I don't want... And, and they don't want to be the one that stands out when something goes wrong. And maybe I shouldn't admit this, but some of my favorite wedding memories are when something goes wrong uh, at a wedding. Like, I, per I personally think wedding bloopers are the best. And I often kind of counsel people to just expect them. You know, these are some of, the, some of my favorites that I've seen and witnessed. You know, one wedding, a groomsman, he just kind of passed out during the ceremony because he locked his knees. That was great. At another wedding, a good friend of mine got bumped into a, by a server, and he falls into a fountain pool, gets completely drenched. At another wedding, uh, there was a full-on blizzard that came uh, and snowed in the entire wedding. It's great. One of my favorite wedding bloopers uh, was a wedding that my wife was in. She was a bridesmaid, and the night before the wedding, there was a miscommunication about the groom's cake, uh, where it was to go, um, which somehow translated into the mother of the bride getting all of the grandchildren together, grabbing forks, and eating the cake all together the night before the wedding. And on that same night, the bride's sister, who was to be singing in the wedding the next day, found out uh, she had lice in her hair, and so instead of treating it, she thought it would be a good idea to rather just cut all of her hair off the night before the wedding, uh, making for some incredible wedding pictures. And to top it all off, that same sister forgot all the words she was singing and completely fumbled her way through how deep the Father's love for us and the full glory of her new hairdo. Like, these are the types of things people are trying to avoid at weddings because of how special and formal weddings are for people. And because of that, nerves and tensions can be high and expectations are high. And what we'll see in our passage is a wedding. And we'll see where there's a problem. A problem occurred, and Jesus, who is at the wedding, comes in and saves the day with a solution, which is how we're going to kind of structure our time for today. Um, a, the problem, and B, the solution. We'll have a, we're actually going to have a different outline, um, but this is how the text is structured, and so I did want to just throw that out there. Uh, but that being said, at a first reading, this, is, this seems like a very simple passage. In a lot of ways, it really is. But as the great theologian uh, Shrek once said about ogres, we can say the same thing about our story today. It's like an onion. 
It has layers. And we'll keep pulling back the layers as we go. Um, but let's go ahead and read our entire story, and then we're going to go from there, kind of pulling back the layers of our onion. Can we do that? Yeah, okay. This is what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When their wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, and then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now." This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so at a quick reading, we would see very simply that they were at a wedding and the wine ran out. And I think it's fair to say it was a bit of a stressful moment for those involved at the wedding. You know, like that's our problem. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, finds Jesus uh, and, and Jesus solves the water. I mean, solves the problem and turns water into really good wine. Everyone was amazed, and boom, his disciples believed in Jesus, and everyone is merry and happy, uh, making for a great story where Jesus is the hero with a bag full of cool party tricks uh, with the power to transform water to wine. And we could end the story there, and we could call it a day. However, like I said with ogres and onions, this story has layers, and a lot of them. Or maybe you're more of a matrix person. Uh, we could say, as Morpheus said to Neo, uh, let me show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Because when we look at verse 11, we see that this miracle was a sign, meaning it's pointing to something else. And as we've said, this story is full of layers and depth. And y'all, the rabbit hole goes deep. There's, there all, there's all kinds of symbolism in our passage. It points to all different types of things. You know, I told our staff this week, I feel like we could do a whole mini-series just in this one story. But we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to take the onion approach and peel back the layers as we go. That said, I do want to glance at the, at the outer layer of our onion uh, and see the big picture, and it's our main idea for today, and it's that Jesus has the power to transform. That's where we're going. And at the first layer of our passage, we see that Jesus turned water to wine, which we'll see as our first layer today, uh, but I intentionally left that off. I intentionally left off water to wine in our main idea because by the end of our time, we're going to see that Jesus has the power to transform way more than water to wine. And yes, I know I've already kind of given you that basic structure with the problem and the solution, but that said, I'm actually going to show you four different problems and four different solutions, peeling back four different layers to the story. So that said, the first layer is number one, Jesus transformed water to wine. But I want to mention something here about this first layer, uh, what we see at a first reading. It, it, it's rich and it's life-giving. You know, the Bible, it's both simple, and y'all, it is also incredibly deep. And I don't want to underestimate the power of a very simple reading of God's Word. Because when we first, when we first read or when we first hear this story, whoever it is, whether it's my nine-year-old daughter, a person who's never read the Bible before, or a scholarly theologian who's been studying the Bible for over 30 years, there is a level of shock and awe that takes place in this story. Because up to this point in the book of John... 
We've heard about Jesus from the introduction. We've heard about Jesus from the John the Baptist. We've seen a few simple, ordinary encounters with his new disciples uh, and Jesus telling him to follow him. And when they did that, they noticed something special about Jesus. And they were convinced that he is the one they've been waiting for that will rescue them. And last week, uh, we saw one encounter with a guy named Nathaniel in John 1, where Jesus shows he has the power and, knows, uh, and that Jesus knows all things. But that instance with Nathaniel was way more subtle. It was just for one person. But now, a couple days after this, what we see at this wedding is not so subtle anymore. It's miraculous. It's awe-inspiring. It's, it's a true miracle. And not only that, it's showing Jesus, uh, Jesus showing his power to a whole crowd of people. And anybody that reads or hears this story about Jesus turning water into wine has to either say, oh wow, Jesus is either a really good magician or he is divine and he has miraculous power. And like there's no in between here. Either Jesus did this and is God or he is a really good magician. Nobody can read this story and then be apathetic about who Jesus is. Like uh, this story at our first face value reading forces us to make some sort of decision about Jesus. It forces us to ask, as our series suggests, what do you believe? You either think it's all a scam and a big hoax, or you believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There really is no room for anywhere in between. It's either all true and it changes everything, or it should be adamantly rejected. And we see all that Jesus does and who he is throughout all of the Gospels. Uh, There leaves absolutely no room for an indifference towards Jesus. And so let me just pose the question for you to consider. Is it true or is it not? Like, what do you believe? And let me just affirm that, yes, it is okay to not be sure and explore, but at some point for every person, a step of faith is required. And here in our text today, Jesus comes out, he comes out guns a-blazing with no more subtle hints of his divinity, ultimately making people decide by the picture he gives at this wedding, either Jesus has the power to turn water to wine, making him divine, making him God, or he's the greatest con artist of all time. And what we'll see today is that, yes, Jesus, the Son of God, he turned water to wine. And so this is what we're going to do with our first layer. We're going to walk through this entire story, a few verses at a time, uh, make a few surface-level observations about the story to make sure that we see every detail, and then on the back half of our time, we're going to really start to pull back our, the layers to our, to our onion, just a layer at a time. So look back at verses 1 and 2. This is what it says, again. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. They were in a small town of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus and his mother and his new disciples were all invited to a wedding. But, but notice, Jesus was just attending the wedding. He was simply a guest at the wedding. And, you know, like I said at the, be- be- at the beginning, you know, I love weddings. It's, it's being a guest is the best because you're not worried about anything. You just kind of show up, get a little food, uh, do a little dancing, a little chit-chatting. You know, it is the best. I love it. But like I said, it seems like at most weddings, someone, at least one person, is a little panicked because of how important the day is. And our story today is no different. Look at verse 3. We see the problem. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This was a big problem. The wine running out was a big deal. And Jesus' mother, we see here, he, she came to Jesus to get him to help with this problem. You know, during this time, 
uh, wedding celebrations, they typically lasted about a week. And the responsibility of the supply of wine, it typically fell on the groom. You know, here in the United States, the bride typically is over the wedding. Uh, but during this time in this culture, the groom was responsible for the reception. And, and, and to run out of wine, it was an embarrassment for the groom and his family. And just to prepare you for what's to come uh, that we'll get into later, is that the symbolism of this wine, this wine, the wine in this story, it is a big deal. It points to several different things. But we'll get to that. Um, so let's get back to our story. Look at verse 4. Look at what Jesus said back to his mother she, uh, she came, after she came to him saying uh, the wine ran out. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, at first, this doesn't seem like the warmest response. <laughs> um, like she was trying to help. She was uh, coming to Jesus to get him to help. And it seems like Jesus is just brushing her off. And y'all, my mama uh, would have smacked me upside the head if I said this back to her. That's just what would have happened. But we need to remember saying this during this time would have not been received the same way. It would have been uh, as it would have been received today. You know, maybe it would be like saying, uh, addressing a lady as ma'am in our culture, possibly. You know, it, it would not have been seen as a degrading comment, a direct comment, yes, it was direct, but degrading, no. And, you know, so much has been said here about why Jesus said this, and, and we'll circle back around to this, but at a face value reading, at the surface of our story, uh, it should at least cause a level of curiosity for us. Because whenever we read the Bible and something seems strange, that's a really good sign we need to do some more exploring. But we'll come back to that. Look what his mother said back in verse 5. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. His, his mother's respected Jesus, uh, showing a level of submission to Jesus. Uh, yes, she's his mother, but she also knows that he's the Messiah and, and, and that Jesus knows what's best. And just as a quick statement for us uh, who are now servants of Jesus, these are great instructions for us. And it's to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. At the end of the day, that's our call as Christians, to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. But let's keep moving. Um, you know, look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Uh, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So we see here that Jesus tells the servants to fill up those six stone uh, jars. And as we saw in verse six, those, those six, those jars were used for religious purification. And they were very large, like they were 20 to 30 gallon stone jars. Uh, that's almost 180 gallons all put together. And those jars were at the wedding. Uh, they, were, they were there for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing so that uh, various things could be cleansed by the water. And it wasn't just for sanitary reasons, but, uh, but because Jewish law and customs required ceremonial cleansings in order to honor God. Like they were used for both physical and spiritual cleansings in order to honor God. Uh, there was a desire for marriage to be pure, and these jars helped to show that. And Jesus said to the servants, take these jars that were used for outward cleansing and fill them to the brim. And then look what Jesus says next, starting at verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, 
Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And just like that, Jesus turns water to wine, and everyone was amazed. Uh, But it wasn't just any wine. It was a new wine. It was a better wine, uh, seeing that when Jesus transforms something, he goes above and beyond. You know, and as we saw in verse 11, it said, this showed his glory and the disciples believed, showing us that Jesus turned water into wine to show his glory. And when the disciples saw his glory, they believed. You know, everything that we just read at the first layer of our onion reveals Jesus's glory and causes us to ask the question, what do you believe? And so let's ask the question, what do you believe about Jesus? This is a question for everyone to consider. And you know, how I just walked through this story would have been how the disciples understood it and viewed this encounter at this time because of how they believed in Jesus and followed him. But as we saw in verse 11, this story was a sign. It was pointing to us, it's pointing us to something. And us today, y'all, we know way more than what everybody present at this wedding knew. We have a much fuller picture And so we're going to use what we know from the rest of our Bible and pull back a few more layers and see how deep the rabbit hole goes. And as we start to get into our next couple layers, I need to explain a few things about what we just saw. You know, the first thing I want to dig into in this story is the wine. This is a big part of the story. The wine ran out. This was a problem. And Jesus' mother came to Jesus asking Jesus to help. And I want us to think back to this tension. This is this, this happening here in verse 3. Look, look at it again. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, again, this was a big problem. It was an embarrassment for the groom and his family. Like they felt shame. Like someone coming over to your house for dinner and not having food for them. Like, oh yeah, sorry, I know I invited you over for dinner, but we actually don't have any food left. <laughs> like wine was expected at a wedding celebration, just like uh, food would be expected at a meal. And, because, and what I want to emphasize here is that in Jewish culture, wine symbolized joy and celebration. Wine symbolized joy and celebration. And being at a wedding celebration, wine was expected. And so to say they have no wine could have very easily been translated and understood as meaning they have no joy. Like the joy is gone and the celebration is over. Like, this is how it would have been understood during this time. In fact, rabbis, they had a common saying that said, without wine, there is no joy. Psalm 104.15 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. This is how, just how wine was perceived and viewed. And when Jesus' mother came to him and said, the wine has gone out, when we slow down and pull back the layer here, we can begin to see that in many ways, this can very easily speak to the state of our humanity. Where for many around the world, maybe this would characterize the state of their life, where much of their joy and celebration of life has gone out. And maybe you remember when Jesus came onto the scene as a baby, it was a dark, it was a joyless season. There wasn't much to celebrate during those 400 years of silence. It seemed like the party was over and the wine had run out. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we may see our own lives, parts of our lives maybe this way where it seems like the joy and celebration has run out. Maybe a marriage that was once filled with joy and and connection 
At times, maybe now it feels empty. Maybe your relationship with a friend or a family member uh, that you were once close to no longer sparks the same excitement it once did, or maybe has abandoned you altogether. And it feels like the joy has run out. Maybe work or parenting or school or some new endeavor that gave an initial excitement in that new season, but now it's all worn off and the joy and the celebration, it's run out. Like, I have no clue what you come in with today, but I wouldn't be surprised if this would speak to some of our lives, feeling like maybe your joy has run out. And at times it feels like the party has ended, the music and the laughter uh, came to a screeching halt. I mean, this happens in life. Does it not? You know, one minute we're on top of the mountain, celebrating and filled with joy, and the next minute we are in the pit of a valley where it seems like the joy and celebration has run out. That's the tension in our story in verse 3. The joy of the wedding celebration has ended, and they are in a place of desperation. But I do want to point out what Mary did in her desperation when the wine ran out. She went to Jesus. She went to the one she knew could help with the problem. Notice what she didn't do. Mary didn't go and try and fix it herself. She didn't leave the party. She didn't go and complain to everyone around her. She didn't gossip. She didn't ask all sorts of questions as to why this happened. She didn't give up and despair and quit. No, she went to Jesus. Christian, hear that today. In your valley... In your desperation, when the joy and celebration runs out, go to Jesus. Jesus wants us to come to him in the deep valleys and also in our mountaintops. Like it sounds so cliche, but it is so true. God's greatest work in our life often, often happens when we come to him in our darkest moments. And I want to call us as a church in our dark days, whenever they come, to remember this. To remember to let God minister our souls in our places of desperation. And if you're not a Christian here today, know that Jesus longs for you to come to him. When you feel lost and confused, Jesus longs for you to come to him. But let me also say, if you're not there right now, before you get to that place, know that he wants you to come to him. And he wants you to put your faith and trust in him. him. Because again, Jesus, he meets us in our valleys, but he also longs for us to see the mountaintop with him. So what else do we see Jesus transform in this story? We see number two, Jesus transforms mourning to joy. Because that's what Jesus does. When it seems like the party has ended and the joy has been lost, Jesus enters in and over time, he is able to turn our mourning to joy. Sometimes it takes time and sometimes it takes healing and it doesn't mean our circumstances get better. It just means our source of joy is Jesus and not our circumstances. You know, I can tell you from personal experience time and time again, when we come to Jesus on empty Like we see in our story with the wine, when we come to him in desperation, I can honestly testify that Jesus is faithful to fill our souls to the brim over and over and over again with joy and gladness because that's what Jesus does. He takes dry, empty jars and he is able to fill them to the brim with his goodness time and time and time again. Jesus did it with the wine and he's also able to do it with our souls. But you know what we can't miss here? It often takes us coming to Jesus with empty jars and great dependence, realizing we need Jesus for us to see Jesus and for him to be able to fill our jars to the brim with an overflowing joy. Listen, 
Jesus is not only a set of theological beliefs to uphold with our minds, and he's not only a set of doctrines to memorize. Yes, we need to know all these things. These are good and true. But what we see in this story is that Jesus is also something we experience. Jesus desires and delights for us to taste and see that he is good. Jesus doesn't want us to only mentally know that he is good. No, Jesus desires for us to taste it and to see it and to experience it because when Jesus invites us to come to him, he invites us to a feast. And when we come to a feast, we experience it, we taste it, we smell it, we touch it, we see it, we hear it. And when those at the wedding tasted Jesus' new wine, they got a small foretaste of the incredible goodness of God. They got to taste the joy of Jesus. Christian, hear that today. We have an everlasting source of joy and gladness in Jesus, and I want to call us to long to taste and see his goodness and faithfulness. Oh, there's so many layers to this story. That's just the second layer. And so we need to transition to our third, and we're going to continue to look at the wine, but we're going to look at it from a different perspective, because this wine actually shows us two different things. We saw how the wine symbolized joy and celebration, but what we also know from the rest of the Bible is that this wine also symbolizes Jesus' blood, which may seem a bit strange. Like, how can one thing symbolize two radically opposing ideas? Like, on one side, it symbolizes joy and celebration, and on the other side, it symbolizes blood and death. (laughs) It's like, man, that's a real buzzkill. And we know from later in Jesus' ministry when he sat down with his disciples at the, last store, at the Last Supper before Jesus would go to the cross, Jesus made it clear that wine would be a symbolism for Jesus' shed blood on the cross. But you know what? The people at the wedding, they had no idea about this. They had, like, for them, it was all joy and celebration. But what Jesus is starting to point to in this moment was the blood Uh, that would be shed at the cross. Because as we look back on this, when Jesus said to his mother, my hour has not yet come, Jesus was alluding to his hour of agony at the cross, where he would be beaten and whipped and scorned and have his blood shed when he was nailed to the cross. But again, the people at the wedding, they had no idea. They had no clue he was doing this. But what we can now see looking back on this is that Jesus, with the wine, he was connecting his shed blood at the cross to joy and celebration. And you may be thinking, I don't get it. (laughs) How is Jesus' death on the cross, how is Jesus' crucifixion and the cross and blood, how is it now a symbol of joy and celebration? And friends, it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because of the good news of Jesus. Because if you remember, those six stone jars that held the water, they symbolized religious purification. And before Jesus walked this earth, the only way to have been cleansed of sin and seen as clean and pure was to go through a ceremonial cleansing, a ceremonial washing. But when Jesus comes on the scene and he turns that ceremonial water into a new wine, a better wine... Jesus was beginning to show the watching world that Jesus has come onto the scene to bring a new way to be made clean and new before a holy God. And and that new way includes both you and me, all of us in this room. And so follow me here. This is our good news. Jesus' new way for you and me to come to God 
and have a relationship with him and be clean and seen as pure was through Jesus' death on the cross. It was through his shed blood. God does not look at us and approve of us because of some ritual we do or anything good we may do. No, the Bible tells us he approves of us only when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And in doing so, he gives us a clean slate. And get this, the wine that seemed paradoxical, like at odds with each other, where on one side it seemed like joy and gladness, on the other side was death and blood, what seemed to be at odds with each other, Both of these things are fully pictured in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where in the gospel, we go from a lost pit of despair to being named a child of God, filled with the spirit that produces the fruit of joy and gladness in our life. Just to say this a few different ways, showing both pictures here, Jesus' death and sorrow and sadness at the cross is our way to gladness in the Lord. Remember, we can say it this way. Jesus' grasping breath of desperation at the cross is what leads us to an eternal and forever celebration with God. Y'all, these these two seemingly opposing symbols where wine shows both Jesus' blood and death and also joy and celebration, it only makes sense in the gospel, which shows us that Jesus' death on the cross also provides a means for celebration, which shows us the full picture of our third layer. I mean, number one, we saw Jesus transform water to wine. Number two, Jesus transformed mourning to joy. And through the gospel, number three, Jesus transforms sinners to saints. Y'all get this. (laughs) Don't miss this. By believing in Jesus, we're invited into a celebration with God where Jesus makes us completely new. Like Jesus didn't turn the water into better water. Jesus didn't take bad wine and make it better wine. No, Jesus turned water into wine, and he made it an entirely new creation, which is what Jesus does for those who trust and believe in him. Through the gospel, by trusting in Jesus, we go from dead in our sins to alive in God. We go from lost and without hope and separated from God to then considered a royal priesthood, considered God's beloved children, and considered completely pure and clean before God. God doesn't look at us as kind of clean. No, we're like a brand spanking new kind of clean. And you know what's so great about all of, all of this? This doesn't happen to us because we go through some ceremonial cleansing of beca- or because of anything we do. No, we become a brand spanking new creation solely based on what Jesus did at the cross. <laughs> Jesus, you know, this is Jesus' new and better wine. You know, I pray this all the time for our church, that God would use New City Church to be a place of radical transformation in the lives of people. I've been praying for over three years before we ever lived in this city on my crazy prayers list that I pray regularly for all of us. Like, I've been praying that we would see prostitutes become prayer warriors, drug addicts become disciple makers, convicts to become church planners, the comfortable to become courageous, the greedy to become radically generous, and those on the sideline of God's mission to be sent out all over the world into the mission of God. Why? Because this is what God does. God has the power to transform someone, taking them from a rebellious sinner to a redeemed saint. God takes our rubbish and he makes us rubies. God takes our dirty rags and transforms us into his holy garments. God takes our mourning and sorrow, and he is able to turn it into joy and gladness. And it's not some sort of fake, silly joy. This is a real, true joy. Why? Because this is what God does. 
New City Church, do you believe this? Do you believe this about the heart of God? Again, let me ask, what do you believe? We've got one more layer to our story. As we get into our last layer here in the last eight to ten minutes of our time, I want to stop here and have us consider something. And let us just ask the question, like, why would Jesus make a wedding the setting of his very first miracle? And what I hope you've seen today is that this story is far more than just a miracle. In fact, John never actually calls it a miracle. He, he calls it a sign. But what I hope you've seen is that this story is a picture of the greater story of Christianity. And as we get into this final layer, I want to I uh, look back. I want to go back to the stark comment in verse 4 when Jesus had that interaction with his mother. This is what he said. Woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, I mentioned that this seems strange. And when strange things happen in the Bible, it should cause us to be curious. And as I said earlier, Jesus wasn't being rude to his mother. He was being direct, yes. And Jesus here was giving a direct reminder to his mother as to why he came. And when Jesus said, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come in verse 4. In essence, he's letting his mother know in reminding her, hey, I'm not the groom at this wedding. Jesus is only the guest at this wedding. He's reminding her that the groom is responsible for the wine, and this is not his wedding. Jesus is not the groom. Reminding both her and us, that Jesus didn't come to earth for the John 2 wedding. No, Jesus came to earth for his own wedding. And I think it's fair to say, and many scholars agree, that the reason Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding is because in the end, when everything is all said and done, as we've seen at the end of the Bible, the last and final picture we see is with Jesus, the Lamb of God, at his own wedding. But in that last and final wedding, he's not merely invited to the wedding, but rather Jesus is the groom of that wedding, which shows us our last and final transformation. Number four, Jesus transforms from guest to groom. And at this wedding in John 2, Jesus is just attending as a guest, but the wedding he came for in the end, in that wedding, Jesus will be the groom. Jesus begins his ministry at a small wedding, and from what we now know, he will end his ministry at a grand wedding, at his own wedding, inciting awe and wonder with every follower of Jesus throughout the history of the world, living in an eternal wedding celebration where the joy never runs out, where there will be no more death and no more pain and no more crying and no more sadness, whereas the Jesus Storybook Bible tells us, I love this kid's book. Sally Lone Joy says, uh, where everything that is sad will become untrue. And what I don't want us to miss as we close out our time is how Jesus ties the hour of his death on the cross to immediately following the statement that reminds his mother that he's not responsible for the groom. Because in this moment in verse 4, Jesus is alluding that the wine he's responsible for is the wine at his own wedding. He's not responsible for this wine. And the wine for Jesus' wedding, it was costly. The price for that wine that Jesus knows, it's enormous. It's massive. The cost of the wine for Jesus' wedding was Jesus' very life. It was his blood shed on the cross that would be the price to bring joy and celebration at his own wedding. But you know what? 
The Bible tells us with the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And the joy that was before Jesus was the joy of celebration of his own wedding, the eternal and everlasting wedding. And this wedding will be far, by far the most incredible wedding that will ever be known and attended to in the history of mankind. Because people from all over the world, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language will be at Jesus' wedding. And everybody at this wedding, just like we saw in our story, will drink from the fullness of Jesus' better wine at Jesus' wedding. This wine, this joy, it will never run out. And you know what's so incredible about this entire story? It actually can include both you and me. And you know what part includes you and me? It's not the wedding in John 2. It's the wedding in Revelation 19. It's Jesus' eternal grand wedding. But I do want to be clear. The only people that will be invited and able to attend Jesus' wedding in the next life are those who put their faith and trust in Jesus in this life. And so if you desire to be a part and attend the greatest wedding in the history of mankind and drink from the fullness of Jesus' everlasting joy and gladness, the only way we're invited is to put our faith in Jesus before we get there. So let me ask this very bluntly. If you were to die tonight, would you have an invitation to Jesus' wedding? Jesus has put his hand out with the invitation. Jesus' invitation was the cross, So let me ask, have you taken the invitation? Have you put your trust in Jesus? If you have not put your trust in Jesus, do it today. Like the invitation is right in front of you. The invitation was Jesus to shed blood at the cross. Believe in him. Take it. Put your faith in Jesus and then tell someone, we want to celebrate with you. But do you know what the best part of all this is when we get to Jesus' wedding? For those who do go, who put their faith in Jesus Y'all, we won't be the guests. (laughs) No, we'll actually be the bride at the wedding. The body of Christ, the church, all of us together will be considered the bride of Christ on that wedding day. So if you're not responded to Jesus by following him and trusting him, I want to encourage you today to take this as an opportunity and respond to the invitation to Jesus' wedding. He's handed you the invitation. Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave, and now he is calling on us to respond. Do you know what happens when we put our faith in Jesus in this life? He begins to show us in this life his incredible power to transform us from sinner to to saint, and he turns our mourning into joy because that's what Jesus does. We don't have to wait for the next life to taste his goodness. No, he invites us to taste it right now. Let's pray. God, I have no clue who's come in here today who hasn't yet put their faith in Jesus. Father, I pray that right now, in this moment, that they would put their faith in Christ if they have not yet done so. Father, we want to see as many people as possible at Jesus' wedding. Father, we want to see people from all over the world. Your, your word has promised that, but I am praying for people in our, many, many people in our own city and in this room, all of us, that we would all put our faith and trust in Jesus if we haven't, and that if we have, Father, I pray that we would taste and see the goodness of God. 
that we would live in the everlasting joy that you provide for us on a daily basis. God, we need your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.